Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Man, we got a great Hollywood conversation coming up with Hollywood property master Don Nunley, who has written a new book called Steve McQueen, Le Mans in the Rearview Mirror. Don was uh, the property master for Le Mans. That was a very important role uh, because of uh, the way the film ended up being produced. We get into that in the conversation. Le Mans itself is, of course, the 24-hour French race that is uh, one of the pinnacles of uh, auto racing. And McQueen prepped professionally and even competed in the maybe sister event to Le Mans, nonstop 12-hour race at Sebring. He came in second to Mario Andretti. And uh, this is a Steve McQueen in the middle of his career after huge hits in the 60s from The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and later on The Thomas Crown Affair and Bullet. McQueen was in a position of power to uh, create his own production company and finally make a film that he had been thinking about for 10 years, and that's the film Lamont. It's a cult classic. Mr. Nunley was, uh, as I said, the prop master, and because of that took incredible photos and has this incredible 422-image book that is 256 pages. And let me tell you, it tells the story of Le Mans in a way that you've never heard it before. There's been a documentary about Le Mans, even a graphic novel depicting uh, uh, Le Mans and McQueen's involvement. But uh, this is an incredible story, and uh, you're going to learn a lot about it. We don't spoil all the book. There's plenty of stories to share with Mr. Nunley. Not only that, but uh, what an incredible career uh, that Mr. Nunley had working on other big films, and we talk a little bit about films like Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman, and also a uh, great World War II movie, The Bridge to Remagen, which, uh, man, you'd think uh, this was ripped out of today's headlines, but uh, Mr. Nunley and the production company, while making this film in Czechoslovakia, had to face a Russian military invasion. While they're making the movie. Very interesting conversation about that film and, of course, about Le Mans and his excellent book, Steve McQueen, Le Mans in the Rearview Mirror. That's the subject of today's Word Balloon, and I really think you're going to find a lot of fun Hollywood stories from this conversation. Word Balloon is brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And uh, believe it or not, I found some great uh, racing comics uh, in in line with our uh, Le Mans conversation from In Stock Trades. The great Frank Frazetta, who did a lot of great movie posters, uh, did some incredible comics in the 40s and 50s. Among them, a comic strip about a racer, Johnny Comet. And uh, it is it is great. It is uh, midget racing, the little uh, tiny classic uh, racing cars, but uh, written and drawn by Frank Frazetta. It's from Vanguard, and it's 25% off. It's just $18.71 at In Stock Trades. From IDW and the Speed Racer universe, they've reprinted Now Comics' uh, great run on Racer X. That was a really good 90s series, and uh, it was written by Fred Schiller and Steve Sullivan. Volumes 1 and 2 are 40% off. They're both uh, $11.99 each, and again, if you're a racing fan, you'll want to get these books. DC and Hanna-Barbera just wrapped up uh, Wacky Raceland. I uh, think uh, your favorite 60s uh, Wacky Races cartoon mashed up with uh, Road Warrior pictures, and uh, you'll get this excellent series from Ken Pontac and Leonardo Manco. Uh, lots of fun and, and beautiful visuals uh, at their best. This is uh, 42% off, $9.85. Just a few of the books with a racing motif at InStockTrades.com. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from our friends at InStockTrades.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your subscription support via Patreon. 
Uh, I get to do some amazing interviews uh, through this podcast, and uh, you help keep the lights on with your subscriptions. So if you think uh, the conversations you hear at Word Balloon are uh, worth listening to and want to contribute to the cause, go to wordballoon.com. There's an ad for Patreon right there on the front page. It will take you to my Patreon page. Or you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. And uh, if you can uh, spare a subscription, that would be great. Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But if you can help the cause, that's where to go. Patreon.com slash wordballoon. Or just click on that Patreon ad at wordballoon.com. As I said earlier, Lamont's came at a very interesting point in Steve McQueen's life and career. In the press release, uh, I'm going to quote it directly. At the time, McQueen was at the height of his stratospheric popularity after an amazing string of box office hits, uh, talking about things like The Thomas Crown Affair, The Great Escape, Bullet, The Magnificent Seven. In one fell swoop, McQueen ended a 15-year marriage, severed ties with his longtime agent and producing partners, saw his new production company collapse, and lost a personal fortune, not to mention control of Le Mans, the film he had planned to make for over a decade. He was also in constant fear of his life after learning on the set that he was on Charles Manson's death list. And at the end of this film, McQueen was presented with a seven-figure bill by the IRS for back taxes. This was a very tough time in Steve McQueen's life, and uh, I'm not, we, we don't even touch on uh, half of the stories that you're going to get from this book. But uh, I think once you hear this conversation with Mr. Nunley, it's going to make you want to go out and pick up this book. So uh, let's talk now about Steve McQueen, Lamont's in the rearview mirror, with property master Don Nunley, now on Word Balloon. Don Nunley, welcome to Word Balloon. Congratulations on an incredible book. And I have a feeling you could probably write a few more given uh, your long career in Hollywood. Well, my wife tells me I can't. <laughs> she <laughs> said this was way too much work, and she was a big help. How long did it take to, to make the book? Well, about two years, two and a half years maybe, uh, from the time we actually discussed doing it. Very cool. Yeah, you know, um, I saw the documentary uh, about Lamont a couple right. of years ago. And, uh, right. you know... Uh, the the assemblage of the photographs that you had how how you know where did where did all those come from? Well, um, as a prop master, my job is to to match everything that needs to be matched in the film during the different time of the race. So during the actual race itself, I carried a couple of thirty five millimeter cameras around and uh, had an access pass anywhere on the track, and I shot hundreds and hundreds of pictures so I could then go back and match these uh, the signaling pits or the mechanics pits or the paddock area or the private you know VIP booths all that sort of thing let's talk about uh, your, so, your your history as sure. a as a property master um, it's interesting I, I think uh, people that are film buffs know that not only on the acting or directing side but on the technical side there are uh, families that are known for for a certain skill, the Westmores for makeup, for example, and um, right. your your father was a property master, but that wasn't your intended career path initially. Not really. Um, I was going to college uh, mostly to play football, I think, <laughs> on track. But um, in the meantime, I was probably getting somewhat of an education, and I had a spring break, uh, or not a spring break, but a summer break. Uh, I was enrolled at UCLA for the fall, but I needed a summer job. My dad had never encouraged me to come into the film business. I think mainly because uh, he knew the long hours, uh, the time away from home when you're doing location work, the 
egos and people you deal with. I just, he probably wanted something more for me. And yet I loved what he did. He was very good at it. He worked at Universal Studios for 44 years. Wow. One studio, which nobody does anymore. <laughs> back then it was very rare. And uh, he did huge films for them. But back in an era where they didn't give PropMaster screen credit. And he did pictures like Spartacus and uh, you know, the American Warlords, did all the Francis the Talking Mule, um, the Bud Abelou Costello pictures, you know, Mom Pa Kettle, did all those films and never got his name on one of them, which wow. is a shame. He certainly deserved it. <laughs> I, I noticed that uh, in, in the book you mentioned, you were on the set for Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Man, that's, I mean, don't get me wrong, Spartacus is amazing, but, you know, obviously there's a lot of iconic shine to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as well. Well, as a kid, it was a, definitely a highlight <laughs> because um, in, in those days at the studios, they were a little more friendly, and once in a while you could bring somebody in like the, your kid, and my dad brought me in as a treat. I don't remember, I was around nine years old, I think, but I, I met Bud Abbott and Lucas Stello. Wow. I met Bella Lugosi. I laid in Dracula's uh, coffin. I saw <laughs> Lon Chaney Jr. getting makeup to be the Wolfman. And boy, I remember that so vividly. That's probably when deep down in my heart I said, I'd like to do this. Wow. That's really amazing. Um, and then you you uh, you got into TV and uh, uh, did a lot of Westerns and uh other other shows to rattle off some of your television credits as a property master. Well, I did a couple of years in Tales Navy, which was more fun than you can think <laughs> with uh, Tim Conway and, and, and that cast and crew were just terrific. Yeah. Uh, I did um, Streets of Laredo with uh, Devil, Neville Brand. I did uh, The Rifleman, Chuck Connors. Uh, I worked on Zane Gray Theater. Wow. I did, you know, in those days you kind of bounced around. And um, I first met Steve McQueen on the set of Wanted Dead or Alive. And yeah. I was just a lonely, a lonely fourth or fifth broom, as they call it, on the set. And <laughs> I think I met him more with a nod of my head and a smile than, you know, going over and shaking his hand. That's cool. What What were your early impressions of him? That was only one season. And, uh, you know, his it seemed like his, his film career really took off after that, that one season. But you probably yeah. know the, chronologically, uh, chrono the chronology better than I do. Well, Steve was known as a difficult actor. Uh, he didn't show up on time. He uh, wanted to do it his way, no matter what the director uh, or the script said. And he was, uh, he held out and he was, he was difficult. Uh, he was not everybody's favorite guy on the set. At least the crew didn't mind him. He was fine, but he did cost him a lot of time. And uh, so Steve always, I think, had that uh, rebel in him. Well, I guess it served him well in some roles. I mean, you know, and uh, we'll talk about the collaboration with John Sturgis as far as Le Mans goes. But certainly in those formative years, he and uh, John Sturgis made, you know, some incredible movies, Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape that really – you know, kind of crystallized the, the McQueen character. Exactly. And uh, I mean, if you really owe anything to Steve's success with Poppy John Sturgis, early safe in him. And uh, Steve didn't disappoint. He held his own in those casts with all these A-class actors. He, uh, he certainly uh, 
was not a disappointment. And a lot of people remember Steve in those pictures more than they do the other actors. Totally. Absolutely. God, the iconic uh, motorcycle jump and great escape. And uh, just like you said, man, man, Magnificent Seven, so many other great, in both movies, so many A-level actors, as you say, and yet McQueen, you know, definitely does stand out. It's, you know, as, as the 60s progressed, um, going into Le Mans, he had done Thomas Crown Affair and he had done Bullet and really was at the top of his game. And um, as am I hearing correctly that he was kind of jealous of uh, the movie Grand Prix with John Frankenheimer and, uh, and James Garner? Well, I think he felt they beat him to the punch. Okay. Because uh, he, he had this movie. Um, he'd worked on putting this movie together for 10 years. Oh, he didn't okay. have the clout to do it. He couldn't do it until he basically became the number one actor in Hollywood. Um, in fact, this movie almost didn't get made. Warner Brothers owned it and was going to make it. And the last minute they put it in the turnaround, which is another term for saying, we're not going to do it, find mm-hmm. another financer. Mm-hmm. And um, Cinema Center Films, where I had just finished the picture, I just finished Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman and Faye Dunaway and oh, Arthur yeah. Penn directing And uh, the studio uh, saw this opportunity to have the number one box office draw in the world at the time, doing a racing picture after Bullet. They thought it was a no-brainer, so they grabbed it. Uh, The only problem, and it was was a problem throughout the picture, there was not a finished script. And uh, But they felt they could still wing it, put it together. Uh, They brought in Sturgis, who had obviously a track record with Steve. They felt the two of them could hammer it out, and they'd have what they wanted. So, if you read the book, you'll find out that really never happened. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible because this really is the height of Steve McQueen's clout in Hollywood and and appeal, and yet this really is uh, as as you kind of pull out in in the making of the of the film Lamonts, but also what happens afterwards. This is really the start of the fall of Steve McQueen. It certainly set him back. Uh, while we were shooting the picture, Steve was going through a divorce from his 15-year marriage with Neely. He um, obviously was not getting along with John Sturgis or his producers, his friends that had been with him for years. Uh, Bob Reillier, uh, a good friend. Um, he was having problems with his agent. He uh, was found out he was on the Charlie Manson hit list. Found out the IRS was after him. Wow. So he had a lot going on. Incredible. And, um, Go on. Plus, he never had a script. We They never agreed on a script day to day. We were set to shoot about 70% of the movie in the first 24 hours at the race itself. And because Steve, at the last minute, was told he could not drive in the race, and Steve was a competent race driver. He had just uh, driven, driven in the in Sebring and done very well. And um, he intended to drive our camera car in the race. Well, that makes the insurance company said, no way, uh, because if anything happened to Steve, he is the movie. Yeah. And our whole and our whole backing of the film, but you guys call us on it, and it cost us, I think it was the budget at, the half, at that time was around three and a half to $4 million. And so they said, well, he can drive, but the premium on his life for 24 hours will be, Three and a half to four million dollars. Wow. Well, <laughs> needless to say, the studio wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so they told him he couldn't drive, and because he couldn't drive, Steve refused to put on his pilot suit, 
and walk out on the apron before the race with all the other drivers, as they all do, and wave at the crowd and cheer, get cheers, because all these guys are famous in Europe. You know, sure. Joe Sifford, Bell, Brian Redwood, Jackie Hicks, you name it. And they're all movie stars there. So it would have been perfectly normal for people to go nuts when Steve walked out there and waved at him. We would have had shots of him with, well, on the grandstands alone, 150,000 people going crazy. And then he refused to walk through the paddock uh, with the pilot suit on with the same reaction he would have gotten, which would have been great for us in the film. Um, so when he refused to do that, that meant that about well, 40% of the stuff we wanted to shoot the day of the race, we couldn't shoot. Wow. And, and, um, and that's so, we had to create a call. Say that again, sir. I'm sorry. We, I'm sorry. I mean, we had to end up recreating the paddock and, and all the pit stuff and all the grandstands. We had to hire thousands of extras trying to piece together uh, shots, uh, fill the screen with people like you would have normally during the sure. race itself. And that cost the studio a lot of money and a lot of time. Um, that job fell on me, by the way. I ended up being the one that had to put the paddock together with over 50 support vehicles and all the tents and all the, you know, get the people to send back their crews for the tire companies. And it was, uh, it was quite an undertaking. Yeah. To, to match the continuity of, of you live at Le Mans and then, you know, having to recreate sure. it and everything. And again, as you said, that's why you, you got all those great photographs and everything. And it, uh, <laughs> it ended up being great for the book and the, and the documenting the, uh, this, this production that am I, am I hearing right? That like, uh, there was kind of a conflict because, you know, do you have a, a story or do you really just make it about the race in almost a, a documentary sort of way? Uh, Steve wanted the, more of the documentary. He had just finished a picture that he produced called On Any Given Sunday, which was really a documentary on motorcycle racing. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he thought he wanted to kind of do the same thing. It was very successful, by the way. That picture cost a couple of million dollars and goes 22 million in the States. Wow. So he thought he could do the same with motors, you know, with motor cars. And obviously that wasn't going to be what people wanted to pay to go in the theaters and see with <laughs> Steve McQueen in the film. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, now who, uh, who doubled for McQueen during the race? Or he did, well, during the race, yeah, during the race, we, we worked with the John Wire racing team, Porsche racing team. Mm -hmm. And then driving his car in the race uh, was Joe Sifford and Bart Bell. Um, also with the team, that uh, Porsche team, were Brian Redmond and, and uh, see, that, you know, that's that DX, but uh, Pedro Rodriguez. Okay. And these guys drove the actual race with the car numbers that we would use. So you never saw them close enough. But when, you, when we reshot everything and at speed, Steve did the driving. He did the driving with cameras mounted in front of him on the car. He did, he, he did some amazing stuff. We bought a GT40 and mounted cameras on that and went alongside him down the Mulzane Strait at 225 miles an hour. Steve was a competent driver. That's cool. So for some reason, the insurance company said if we were actually filming him in the car, close-ups, he could drive. So that's what we did. Interesting. But and you, and you this, you yeah, go, go ahead, sir. Well, I was just going to say, the book really delves into, I think, a little appeal to people who like movies, like, uh, obviously, Steve McQueen fans, sure. race fans, and the behind-the-scenes look. We, we, I'm very happy with the story that came out. People have read it, say they really enjoyed the story, and then the pictures, of course, a lot of them have never been seen before. So 
So I'm pleased and proud of the book. Uh, the publisher, I can't say it. Is it Dalton? <laughs> uh, yeah. The publisher did a wonderful job, Dalton Hudson Fine Books. It's a beautiful book. Um, I'm very proud of the way it looks, so I'm, I'm happy with all the work we put into it. I'm t- no, it's fantastic, and as you say, it's a really compelling read. In addition to that, the photography is absolutely amazing, and uh, the book also uh, is is uh, nice because I, I I saw at the end of uh, the example I was given that. Uh, there are limited edition uh, versions of the book that you're willing to sign where the proceeds will go to a really worthy cause. That's right. They are, they actually approached us if we'd be willing to partner with them. And uh, I wasn't thrilled with an idea of putting an ad in the back of the book, but the organization is a really strong, uh, worthwhile organization dedicated to clean water around the world. And uh, they've approached me to do a limited number of my photographs and do a sign limited edition. So that'll be interesting. That's terrific. Yeah. The water foundation. And at the end of the show, I will, uh, I'll repeat that, uh, charity information, but yeah, clean water is obviously so important in, in today, you know, from, Absolutely. you know, so yeah, I think it's great that you uh, partnered up with, uh, with those people. I'm curious back to Joe Siffert because, uh, one of the drivers that, uh, you know, did the, did the Le Mans driving, um, there's a lot of iconic uh, labeling on McQueen's, uh, well, the, the race suit. And uh, in addition to that, it's very funny because now the iWatch has, you know, kind of made the watch important again. I thought with uh, clocks on our phones that watches were going to go away. But uh, a very important piece of technology at the time uh, was also a watch. And I know Joe Siffert and uh, the Hewer Corporation were involved in that. I think it's a really interesting story, if you if you don't mind going into it. So, uh, one of the jobs of a prop master is to supply all the personal items for the actor for his part. And of course, the wristwatch is vital and something that they all of them wear and refer to. A lot of the drivers are sponsored by watch companies. Um, the Hoyer company uh, has a wonderful patch, and Steve liked the look of the patch. He wanted to look like Joe Sippard, who wore the patch. And uh, so I got several, I called the Hoyer company in Switzerland. I actually got through to Jack Hoyer, the founder of the company. <laughs> and he was uh, and, and he was very excited about participating. And he sent me some samples of watches. And I laid them out on a table along with various patches and things that Steve might want to use. Um, I had the uh, Omega Moon watch. I just worn to the moon. I had several um, Rolexes all these top watches and um, said, let's put the pictures of the drivers out. So Steve could look at them. He said, I want the Hoyer patch. We knew he was going to wear the Gulf Western patch because that was the Porsche team sponsor. He wore Firestone patch. That was the tires they used. And most, a lot of drivers wore cigarette patches like Marlboro. Steve did not want to do that to his credit. He wanted to be involved with the cigarette. So, he said, I'll wear the Hoyer patch. And then he took the watches and picked up the Omega watch and put it on. He said, I like this watch. I said, Steve, uh, excuse me, but you probably wouldn't wear an Omega watch with a Hoyer patch on your uniform because it was probably sponsored by Hoyer. He said, oh, you're right. But then he turned, I had like four different versions of Hoyer chronographs. And I thought he'd pick up one that kind of looked like the others. So he picked 
probably the most obvious watch, distinctive looking watch I've ever seen. Yeah. Which is the square, square blue face, white dial for your chronograph. He said, I like this one. I said, fine, no problem with me. So he put it on. That's the watch he decided to wear. Well, I'd been warned by his makeup man that Steve had a habit of uh, going home with things. He never saw them again. So he, he said, he said, I bring six electric razor with, razors with me on every picture, and I end up with one if I'm lucky. I said, well, I can't do that. So I called Jack Hoyer back and told him that we had chosen his watch and which one it was, and I needed to get six of them. And uh, he said, well, I'll do what I can do. I'll get him. I said, I need them pretty quick. So he put a courier, gave them to a courier who brought them across the border, paid the, the duty on them, got them to me, and that watch became, as you may know, extremely famous and very expensive. Uh, one sold last year at almost $700,000. One of the originals? Uh, the original were 400 Oh, man. Okay. Cause, yeah, and yeah. Um, you sold a couple of, of, of the ones used on the film uh, subsequently, didn't you? I did. As prop master at the end of the film, I usually I return stuff. I try to be very faithful at returning whatever sure. is loaned to me. And I called Jack, and I said, Jack, we're finished with the picture. Where do you want me to send the watches? He said, will you want them? Wow. I said, well, sure, I, I would like them, but I don't, I, I can't take them for free. That wouldn't be, you know, the studio wouldn't like that. He said, send me a couple hundred bucks. Wow. <laughs> which, which I did, and I ended up with uh, three of the McQueen watches at the end. Oh, my God. And I sold them all in the last 10 years. <laughs> That's a nice retirement package. That's fantastic. Well, I got more for the watches than I got paid on the whole movie. <laughs> I understand. That's amazing. Um, I have to In ask. Fact, I, go I, ahead. I had a great time. I called uh, Bob Relier, the producer of the film, after I sold the, the last watch. <laughs> and we'd stayed in touch over the years. And I said, well, Bob, I finally got paid what I was worth on the movie. <laughs> so what do you mean? And I told him what I sold the watches for. I thought he was going to faint. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, again, and we'll talk a little bit more about the production and everything, and and really what a nightmare it was that you all had to go through. But um, on the watch, uh, it is incredible. I have a friend who was an executive with uh, Tag Heuer in in within the last twenty years, and uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and, I mean, I have friends that have wanted the Steve McQueen watch from Le Mans, and I mean, it really is impressive and. Um, not only can I see, obviously, and I know they still sell models of it, which still go for like a nice, like like eight thousand bucks, I think, right? I mean, something ridiculous, four thousand right. bucks. But um, cool. I also, you know, wonder if in today's iWatch uh, world, how you can have, uh, you know, your you can change your desktop on your on your computer. I'm sure you can change your desktop on iPhone. I'm surprised they don't go into some sort of deal with uh, Tag Heuer, and so that you know, modern modern people can have that incredible face. That, that is on the watch. I mean, believe me, I think I would rather have the watch itself or even a copy of it, but it is such a distinct-looking uh, interface for, for a timepiece. It is a beautiful watch, and you're right. They've made two or three versions of commemorative watches, and they now refer to it as the Steve McQueen watch. <laughs> it's the, and the real name of it was the Monaco, but yeah, absolutely, man. So if people want right. to look it up, exactly. I'm sure I have a picture on uh, wordballoon.com. Right there on our on our episode as we're speaking, but um, so Good. so things did not work out with John Sturgis, which man, I am such a Sturgis fan. 
and and I think is I, I think all of his movies are really really incredible. I finally saw uh, a movie he did with Ricardo Montalban, uh, Mercy Street. I want to say is what it was called, and it was so interesting. It was one of his early movies. But what ha- you know what happened between Sturgis and McQueen? Well, Steve and Sturgis were supposedly sitting down hammering out a script because we started shooting, like I say, without a script, just an outline. Um, they never could come to terms. Steve wanted to make strictly a racing movie, and Sturgis wanted to make a movie with a story, maybe even a love story, maybe something you know of human interest. Steve was not interested. And they, we had three sets of writers working all the time. And don't forget, we're shooting every day yeah. when this is going on. And they would hand us at night, after we wrapped, three different versions of what we might shoot tomorrow. That was a nightmare for me, of course. Um, one of the problems I had was matching the cars because you're doing a 24-hour race, and the cars look different every hour. Sure. And we would, they would say, we're going to shoot hour six uh, in the morning with such and such cars, and hour 10 in the evening with such and such cars. So I had to match those cars. Some of the cars would work early and late. We'd always be bringing him up or down, depending on what they needed to look like at the start or the end of the race. So that was a nightmare. And then the fact that uh, Steve would get on the set and refuse to come out of his trailer, so we'd jump from what we were supposed to shoot to something else so we could shoot something. Wow. I think we shot for six weeks without one word of recorded dialogue and without uh, casting a leading lady. So that was a first for me. <laughs> Man. Yeah, and then you get into in the book about uh, the casting, not only for the leading lady, but also um, uh, another, uh, Louise Louise Edland? Oh, Louise Edland, yes. And, uh, she man. She's a delight. Yeah, you know, and my God, your pictures, I mean, she's lovely. Uh, you know, I, I and uh, <laughs> apparently not only did uh, audiences find her lovely, but Mr. McQueen obviously <laughs> found her very interesting. Yeah. Steve was... Um, he was known to disappear into his trailer on the set for an hour or two with a lady now and then. And um, we we always assumed they were just discussing marching, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I understand. Well, you know, hey, man, he was, again, he was at the top of the world and a good-looking guy. I mean, and, and I really think, right. you know, Thomas Crown Affair really, I think, showed a very debonair side of him that maybe didn't come through on the action movies and stuff. It's true. And, you know, Steve was a charming guy. I wasn't, um, I, he and I were not the kind of guys that would have been bosom buddies because I didn't ride motorcycles. I didn't know anything about the race world until I did this film. Okay. Um, so we, he and I get along well, but um, I didn't hang out with him. And, uh, you know, I, I provided to him what he needed and wanted on the film, and he was grateful for that. Uh, so I would say, uh, overall, I, I'd give him for the people I've worked with a seven or an eight on a scale of ten. Okay. For me, I'd give Jack Lemmon a ten and maybe King Wilder a ten. But um, it was fine. It was a good experience. It was tough work, and it was. Uh, I think that the the outcome of the film uh, speaks for itself. It's a beautifully shot, wonderful racing footage. Uh, probably never be uh, ever. They'll probably never make another film as good as that one because now they refer to computer generated, you know, CGI. Yes. And 
that all looks like cartoons to me. I, I just can't get into those. They don't look right to me. Did but ours you, was done live, real. Did you, uh, did you end up seeing Days of Thunder when it, when it came out? Was there any interest in seeing that after making a film like Lamont's? I did see it, and I personally thought just what I said. It looked to me like it was all computer-generated. Interesting. I understand. Um, the uh, You know, you mentioned uh, Jack Lemmon. You, you worked on an incredible film that he made that is one of the smaller films. I know he was nominated for Best Actor for Save the Tiger, um, but I, know, I, I don't think people necessarily, when they start rattling off Lemon films, you know, it's Odd Couple and some of the comedies, and certainly younger sure. audiences know him from Grumpy Old Men, but Save the Tiger is really such an incredible drama, and it's pretty cool that you got to work on that film. And he actually won the Academy Award that year for the film. Did he? Oh, I totally forgot. That's awesome. Yeah. My God. Okay. Yeah. I'm probably getting that confused yeah. with um, Tribute. Another, another Indeed, great... I don't know the... Uh, it was Jack Lemmon and Jack Guilford, uh, basically two actors. And working with them was amazing because they both were excellent, excellent actors. Agreed. And I, Guilford, uh, really with a with a big comedy ba- background himself, and is uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic film about you know two businessmen really fa- facing bankruptcy in a lot of ways, uh, kind of uh, simpatico to uh, Glen Gary Glenn Ross. You know, uh, fifteen years yes. later. Exactly. So, exactly. no, tremendous. And shame on me. That's awesome. I totally forgot he won the Oscar that year. So that's awesome. Very, very cool. No, I can't imagine. And also, Little Big Man. That's fantastic. I know you mentioned it earlier. And uh, that's that's another great movie. Very subtle Western uh, smart comedy and everything. And a, and a wonderful, uh, you know... Uh, look at uh, Native Americans and stuff. I think it's a. I think it's a very you know. Unfor- you know, back then, unfortunately, you didn't have a real a Native American playing it. But but I thought Hoffman was great, and I really do think it's a tr- tremendous film. Yeah, and uh, Chief Dan George in the film was amazing. He's the I believe at that time certainly the only American. He wasn't American Indian, Canadian Indian. Oh wow! Uh, I guess still Indian. He was Canadian that was nominated for Academy Award for playing. Uh, old Bodskins. <laughs> Great movie. Richard Mulligan as uh, as uh, General Custer. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, Faye Dunaway is is uh, excellent. And in fact, I just saw her scene. Uh, Turner Classic Movies uh, did a great one on one interview with her from their film festival. So, do you get out really? on, on stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I wondered with the book. I hope. Uh, I mean, like I said, you you've got these amazing stories. You just kind of barely touch on them in the book beyond Le Mans. And I and I think you know yeah you you've got to have a ton of stories about all this stuff. You should do a podcast, sir. <laughs> that would be great. There we go. Uh, you know, I think uh, looking back at my career, there were I made like thirty feature films. Some I'm very proud of. Some were a job. But Little Big Man stands out as probably my favorite film, mainly because they allowed us to do it right. We had Arthur Penn on one side. If a studio said, "Don't spend the money." I'd say, go tell Arthur. And Arthur would say, no, he's spending the money, which really made my job uh, more difficult but better because I could do it right. And I, I really appreciated that. And, uh, you know, it, some films are, are memorable for one reason and some for another. Uh, Le Mans is re- really remarkable in my mind because I was only 30 years old, had a huge responsibility. I was working with the top director and star in the world in a foreign country with an interesting subject matter and all the complications that were happening, you kind of took in your stride back then. You just made it work somehow. 
But um, I think the people, if they buy the book and read it, will find it fascinating to get a good behind-the-scenes look at a major motion picture that was never smooth. Uh, Steve McQueen at the top of his career. Uh, the race itself, I think the pictures really do make the book come alive. I'm very proud of it. Agreed. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful book, and I think the legend of Le Mans has grown since its initial... Uh, it it it, it did it. Would he, would you call it a failure or did it make money? Well, it was a disappointment. It didn't wasn't a failure because the picture I think its initial release was around twenty two million dollars, which made minute was in the in the black, but not a lot, not what they expected. Okay, because obviously they had the biggest star in the world, but the picture um, over the years has like you say, grown in its uh, appreciation, uh, considered to be one of the 10 best racing films ever made, mostly because of the racing, not because of the story. I have two more questions, if I can uh, trouble you, about a couple other uh, productions. One, the bridge sure. at, uh, is it Remagen? Remagen. Uh, Remagen. No, Remagen. Thank, thank you. Great movie, great World War II movie, made it a very interesting time uh, when, uh, in was it Czechoslovakia? That you guys were at? That's correct. Um, That's correct. This is right during their revolution, or I should say, uh, you'll you'll probably tell it better. The the leader, it was a Soviet country, but this leader had some leeway for for a long time and kind of was able to kind of relax some uh, communist or Soviet kind of uh, edicts. And then they kind of came down on him. And am I right? Wasn't that while you guys were making the movie? That's true. It was uh, Dubček was the leader, beloved by the people. And uh, we were there shooting when the Russians invaded the country. Wow. Uh, we were shooting a war film with tons of uh, American equipment and German equipment. Um, we had built a huge set over the Baltova River, which was supposed to be the Rhine River. Uh, shooting a historical event, uh, the, the capture of, of the Ludendorff Bridge by the Americans at the town of Remagen. And it uh, it was changed the war. Eisenhower thought it might have ended the war six months sooner because we were able to put fifty thousand troops across this bridge that didn't collapse for some reason. And um, anyhow, we're in the middle of shooting this uh, this picture, and I was working with fifteen hundred extras every day, dressed up as American soldiers and refugees and German soldiers. And every day while we were shooting, there'd be a, a reconnaissance Russian plane flyover watching us down there and it looked like we were holding maneuvers of some sort and I think uh, we may have caused the invasion I'm not sure but they decided to put a stop to what was going on and, and overnight uh, they they invaded the country and it was it was amazing we were we were stuck there for several days we couldn't shoot the picture anymore we had to be escorted out of the country by the embassy um, it was a. It's a good picture, by the way. If you ever want to see a good World War II picture, we finally finished the picture and we shot in Hamburg, Germany, and then went to uh, Rome and shot at Lake Castelcandolfo. Agree. Finally finished the picture. I agree. It is a. It is a very, very good World War II movie, especially uh, coming in 1969. George Siegel and Robert Vaughn and Ben Gazzara among the cast. Uh, exactly. exactly. Yeah. I know. I. You know. And and um, if this is a. Uh, 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 a fictional story, correct me. Robert Vaughn, a couple about ten years ago, maybe on BBC Radio, did um, a little play called "Solo Behind the Iron Curtain," 
and it was about this time making Bridget Remagen. And he in the story, there was a production assistant that was a local Czechoslovakian that wanted to defect. And they kind of smuggle her out when, when you guys had to leave. And is that apocryphal or did that – do you know anything about that or am I – you know, was I sucked into some well, fiction? That, that's possibly so. But <laughs> what, re, what happened – what I know happened is that uh, I went to Hamburg. They shut the picture down, put it in force majeure, which is, you know, act of war. Um, decided because then they don't have to pay anybody or anything, but they asked me to stay and they'd pay me because if they started the movie up again, I had to match everything that we had in sure. the film. I had to recreate everything again. It was, you know, so that was fine. Um, they decided to go. They gave me six weeks to re-prepare the picture in Hamburg. And at the last minute, the Russians released all my equipment. I had M24 tanks and 50 caliber machine guns, you name it. And it was all brought out by truck to Studio Hamburg. And I asked to send my Czech assistant with it. And they did. George Zedek was his name. Okay. And George showed up with all my equipment. And he was a he was a terrific guy, a hard worker, um, He's now become one of the top, if not the top prop master in Czechoslovakia. He's probably retired now, too, if he's smart. But I saw him about 10 years ago. I went back and visited and found him, and he was working, and it was such a great reunion. But he came over, brought all my stuff, and he stayed and worked with me for the rest of the picture. And uh, because of his prestige he got for coming out and working with us, they moved him up in, in uh, celebrity, and he never was out of work again. He told me the money he was able to save being paid hard currency by the, by the Yanks. He went home and bought himself a house, bought his family a summer house, um, got a car, because they were working for, you know, the same. A banker got the same thing as a actor or a director or a guy that swept the streets. It was all communist control. Sure, sure. So he brought hard currency home and was able to uh, live like a, a, a real human being. And such a nice guy. I'm so glad it happened for him. That's a great story. That's fantastic. I'm amazed, although I shouldn't be, that there's a clause somewhere that's active war. <laughs> that's, how the, that's how they get out of yeah. having to pay people. That's amazing. But you, you, you look at most contracts, they have a force majeure contract in it. That's insane. That's really, that's very, very cool. Now, you mentioned that McQueen was kind of known, known for having sticky fingers. I wonder, and, and I don't want you to tell stories out of school if you don't want to, but I had heard rumors about Glenn Ford having that same sort of reputation that he would walk away with uh, piece, pieces, props and pieces of the set. Uh, and, and also, yeah, I don't know if you know if that's true or not, but also any other, any other sticky-fingered actors or actresses that you can remember. You know, I never worked with Glenn Ford, so I can't say. <laughs> okay. And the, one of the one of the things, you know, the problems a prop master has is keeping control and the whereabouts of everything because you always have to have major props doubled. But you can't have, you know, depending on the cost and the availability, a lot of them are antiques. So you do watch that very closely. Sure. Um, I never had uh, I never had a problem with an actor. It got away with something that I did. You know, we would follow McQueen around on the set. I, I assigned a guy to him. And I said, as soon as McQueen looks like he's headed home, whether they've released him or not from the set, 
you follow him wherever he goes and get that watch before he leaves the set. <laughs> so we never we never lost a watch. But he you know, he took off. We'd have to catch him and get him back. And I'm sure the next day he would have said I left it at home or something and then the third day he said I forgot it and pretty soon it's gone. <laughs> I understand. Stories like that are are in this incredible book. And uh, really, con- congratulations. I'm bringing up the title. Hold on one second, because I want to get it right. Here it is. Steve McQueen, Lamaze in the Rearview Mirror, an excellent book from uh, Marshall Terrell, uh, your collaborator, and, of course, Don Nunley, who we've been speaking to today. So congratulations, and uh, good luck with the book. It is out now, and I will tell people where they can get it. But... Uh, Great stories, sir, truly, and I and I, I hope that uh, this book isn't the only representation of what are likely a lot of great stories about uh, your adventures in Hollywood. Well, John, I really enjoyed talking with you, and anytime you need a Hollywood story and you've got a hole in your, in your schedule, give me a call. Oh, it'd be my pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. Don Nunley, man, I got to take him up on that offer and uh, have him back because it's uh, pretty obvious he's got some incredible stories. I want to hear about Mikhail's Navy and uh, some of these other amazing movie and television shoots that uh, Mr. Nunley had over his career. He also is uh, responsible for uh, doing product placement in films, and we didn't even talk about that. You got a sense of it given uh, the sponsors that were involved in Le Mans. But uh, that's another business that Mr. Nunley created and a quite successful one as well. So we're going to try to uh, uh, have him back and uh, give us more Hollywood stories. You know, I guess I misspoke when I said uh, this film represented the beginning of the downfall of Steve McQueen because that's not true. I mean, it it was a momentary slump, but he came back with Junior Bonner and The Getaway was a big success for him. And then, of course, he had The Towering Inferno and Papillon. So uh, there were several uh, big hits to follow for McQueen, but I'm sure there was a big dose of humility. Though you hear the stories about McQueen, and he really was a rebel till the end, so I don't know if he necessarily learned the lessons or not, but uh, this book is really an incredible collection of uh, the stories that happen on Lamont, and uh, Mr. Nunley tells them well, and I really urge you to pick up this book. Steve McQueen, Lamont's in the Rearview Mirror. The book is currently out. Pick it up today. We mentioned as well in the interview that proceeds from the book Go to help the Water Foundation. The Water Foundation is a uh, German concern. They are trying to get more clean water to the people that need it. I think it's a great cause. And you can find out more information if you go to water.foundation. That'll do it for today's episode of Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it. It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where you'll find some incredible graphic novels at amazing prices. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping, and you'll find great books from uh, the classic era of the 30s and 40s all the way to today's modern graphic novel classics, InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening. More great episodes on the way for April. I hope you'll join me. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.